Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in Raw. I am so excited about this podcast episode. I have on the show Greg Lukianoff. Greg is an attorney, a New York Times bestselling author, and the president and CEO of FIRE, which stands for Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. He is the uh, co-author with Jonathan Haidt of one of my favorite books. I mean, I, I would say one of the most important books in the last five to 10 years. Um, I don't think that's an overstatement. The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. If you have not read this book, you need to read this book. It's absolutely incredible. So super excited to have Greg on the show. We had a wonderful conversation, lots of great stuff here. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Greg Lukianoff. All right. Hey, friends. Um, every now and then I I, uh, I reach out to a guest who I'm pretty sure I will never be able to get on the show. Um, and so I, I've been wanting to have Greg on for a while. And I was like, well, you know, he doesn't know me from Adam. So I said, I'm just going to try and, and, and take a stab in the dark, reached out and you agreed to come on the show. So I, I'm this is one of those like fanboy moments where I <laughs> can't believe I'm talking to the author of co-author of one of my favorite books I've ever read. I mean, this is this is like me talking to the Apostle Paul almost. <laughs> well, Greg, thanks, thanks for having me on. on. Yeah, thanks for having yeah. me on. So uh, the book is The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure, uh, co-authored with Jonathan Haidt. Um, and uh, is that how you pronounce his last name? There's always a big debate about that. Oh uh, yeah, that 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 is most people. They say hate, and he's like, no, it's hate. <laughs> so, so somebody I know was hundred percent convinced that it's hate. I'm like, I've never heard him say hate, and like, no, it's hate. I'm like, I don't. Anyway, this book is at least the most important top five. I'll just say top five most important books I've read in the last five years. Um, every page, I feel like you and Jonathan put language to things I was sensing and feeling, and just. And then you backed it up by research. So I, I just, yeah, there, I, I, I want to go through every page almost and have you unpack it. But let's start with what, what led you to write this book? I'm sure there's a big backstory that maybe people aren't aware of. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, happy to happy to talk about it. I, I'm kind of amazed. It, it's still, it, it, it came out in 2018 and it still has, uh, you know, it's still selling like it's a new book. Um, and for me and Height, you know, like we thought it was pretty much common sense to a degree. But it seems that partially because I work on campuses, um, or at least I have for most of my career, you could kind of see the trends coming. Um, so, yeah, so I'll, I'll back up. Um, I went, I'm, I'm like the weird, I'm a first generation American, um, you know, like like a lot of people um, like that. I have a, a sort of special place in my heart for what makes America unique. And freedom of speech was always one of the big parts of it. Um, so I've always been a, a very big defender of free speech in the First Amendment, my organization, the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education. We actually just announced um, on June 6 that we're expanding from being solely focused on higher ed to being defending free speech all over the country. And I joined FIRE in 2001 as the first legal director. We were only about a year and a half old. And we're genuinely nonpartisan. Uh, but that can be really exhausting in the culture wars. I'm sure pretty much anybody, you know, yeah. whoever tries to talk across lines of differences knows these days. So um, I became president in 2006. You know, it's exhausting to be in the culture war. Um, and I, as I, I'm very explicit about in the book, I had a very uh, dangerous depression. I, I was hospitalized as a danger to myself. You know, I, I uh, you know, called 911 because I was planning to kill myself. You know, like I'd even, you know, figured out different ways to do it. And I was hospitalized for a couple of days and I never really thought I'd be okay again. Now for, you know, for, for people who are listening, who struggle with depression, it, when you're at that stage, you know, um, the therapy I'm going to recommend cognitive behavioral therapy, it, that's not enough. Like you need to see a doctor, you need to, you need to get on the phone, you need to tell friends, you need to take action right then right away um to go get help but as i was recovering i was uh, i was studying cognitive behavioral therapy for those of you who don't know a lot about it cbt is this really amazing um approach to dealing with anxiety and depression and it has the most research on it of any mm -hmm. non-drug um uh, uh um intervention and it, it's kind of like, you know, the wisdom of Plato, uh, you know, and all, all the old people who believed in sort of reason as being the, you know, yeah. you know the, 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 will, will bring you to happiness. It really tries to put that into practice. And what you do is 
you look at what, what like when you're depressed generally um the voices in your head i don't mean this in a mystical sense but like the, the like the, your self-critical voices go on overdrive um you know everything's a catastrophe everything's personal every emotional response you have you have to do something about it these are all called cognitive distortions and to be clear Every human being does these. But when you're anxious and depressed, what they found was that you do these a lot more. But if you could actually get in the habit of talking back to your brain and get your brain in the habit of not taking these, um, you know, panicked voices quite as seriously, it, it, it's transformative. It, it saved my life. Um, and it's transformative for anxiety and depression. Um, and, but you have to get in the habit of it. The, I, a lot of people think that you, you um, just knowing this intellectually, you know, like will be enough. And that's that's not true at all. So I was taking I was doing cognitive behavioral therapy as I was recovering. And I was looking at the the free speech cases I deal with on campus. Oh, we also defend uh, religion on campus as well and uh, and due process. And I what I thought to myself is like, wow, this is like they're telling young people that they should catastrophize, that they should overgeneralize, that they should engage in binary thinking and emotional reasoning. Um, but at the time, 2008, by that point, thank goodness the students weren't paying attention, you know, like they were rolling their eyes um, at authority, just like young people have always done. But unfortunately, right at the end of 2013 and going through 2014, like lightning struck, you had students suddenly uh, who had been previously on campus, the best constituency for free speech. Um, they got academic freedom. They got, you know, they, they got racy jokes. They got the how you need to protect, you know, offensive comedians, all this kind of stuff. But in 2014... Um, suddenly you had students really demanding uh, new speech codes in the form of trigger warnings and microaggressions. You had a massive uptick in disinvitations of, of um, speakers being disinvited because people didn't like what they had to say. And it was all couched in this sort of medicalized language, you know, that essentially like if this person shows up to campus, it will be traumatic, usually not for the person saying this, but for some other third party there that they need to protect and they need to do anything to protect. And I, I was like, wow, this is exactly what I was afraid of. Like they are they're not just going against speech. They're using cognitive distortions to go against speech. So this won't just be bad for freedom of speech. This mm. is going to be bad for mental health. And so I told my friend, uh, my new friend at the time, Jonathan Haidt, in 2015, social psychologist, this idea, which so far anybody I'd told it to thought it was kind of weird. We uh, got together and wrote a article, a long article for The Atlantic. It was a cover story for in August 2015. Um, and we solved the whole problem. <laughs> the, the title that I remember reading that the title was The Coddling of the American Mind, right? It was the same title yeah. as the book. Okay. Yeah, the, the, the uh, yeah, the, solved the, the, the whole problem. The, 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 yeah, and here we are. We live happily every after. No, well, what no, else? Uh, what else can we talk about? No cognitive distortions. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, no, I, I can't resist making that joke. Uh, partially because, like, since people give us credit for seeing this coming, and you know, that's I, I appreciate that. That's very nice to say. But at the same time, given on the other side of this, this is something we've been fighting, you know, forever. Uh, both, both the free speech and the, and it's all gotten so much worse. So in 2015, you know, we 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 thought we were done. We thought that you know we we wrote this article that was very well cited and surprisingly warmly received, uh, and then everything got so much worse. We decided to write a book and go much more in depth, and that came out in 2018. And uh, sadly, you know, like even though things were much worse in 2018 than they were in 2015, it's gotten so much worse since the book came out because 2020 was the worst year for free speech on campus that I've seen. Really? Um, it was not a great year for mental health. The mental health situation for young people is still in a very bad state. Um, suicides are up. I'm glad that that um, we were able to contribute to people's understanding of this stuff, but I, I don't think we're... we're paying enough attention to what the mental health lessons are for that matter the free speech lessons are of coddling because we're still teaching kids like you know uh, uh an idea that they're super fragile and part yeah. of the problem is if you tell people that they're super fragile and by the way human beings are not super fragile like we, we can recover from amazing things um we're incredibly resilient unless you actually tell them Oh, by the way, you'll be ruined for life if you actually hear this thing or experience this thing. So, yeah, I, I think that we that when I have to sum up what coddling the American mind is about, I just say, listen, uh, we're, we've been teaching a generation of young people 
the mental habits of anxious and depressed people. So we should not be surprised when they become anxious and depressed in huge and terrifying numbers. One of the things you touched on early on that I thought was really helpful, and again, it's one of the many things in the book that kind of put research and language is something that I was just kind of sensing a lot um, is this whole rise of safetyism that, and, and I was, I was the the milk carton generation. So I, I'll never forget being raised in the eighties where every time I need, I'm eating my cereal, I'm looking at a milk carton with another missing kid. And my parents are looking at this and, and it almost became this mindset that if I walk out the door, yeah, there's at least four or five kidnappers waiting to come through, throw me in the van, take me away. And, and, I, I think I was raised in the middle of that. So I, I remember riding my bike all around town or whatever. But then I think as I got in the teenage years, it's almost like this hyper fear of just there's every other person out there is out to get me and everything. Can you explain, unpack that a little more? Because I remember thinking back, reading that section, I was thinking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, you, you, you trace what I never really reflected on. But like, yeah, where did we get from me riding my bike around town as a kid to all of a sudden teenage years, adult years, and then even like, as a parent, I've got four teenage kids and it's like, it's embedded in my psyche. Like, oh yeah, we, yeah. they can't get the mail. Like what if the mailman's, you know, going to throw them in the back of the, you know, can, yeah. Can you unpack the rise of safetyism? Yeah. Well, it, uh, I hate to pry, but um, can you let me know what year you were born? 76. 76. So yeah, I'm 74. Okay. Right. So yeah. uh, you look, you look so much younger than me. I think, I, I think the, uh, the, 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 the great, the great, the great beard, beard, man. Yeah. So yeah, it, 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 I mean, I have to point out from my own childhood when people, you know, who know me pretty well, I always want to be very clear. We, I pro my childhood was too free range. <laughs> you okay, know, yeah. I, I probably could have used a, a lot more oversight than I actually had. Um, but at the same time, uh, since I started working when I was 11 and like the, you, you know, the rising to all these challenges, it meant that I showed up with superpowers when I got to college because I had all these people who'd never had a drink in their life and, and didn't know how to manage their own money, didn't know how to make money, had no discipline. It, it really was something that was a huge advantage, you, you know, going in. Now, when it comes to safetyism, I always like to do a shout out for um, a psychologist who was my chief researcher uh, when we were writing Coddling the American Mind, Pamela Paretsky. Um, she wrote, um, and I apologize, I always like my mouth always wants to put a T into her name. And it's not that I think there's one there, but she was the one who coined the term safetyism. And this was us trying to explain, trying to come up with a good term for two different phenomena. One is this idea that at some point there seemed to be no pushback against uh, anything, if you argued physical safety, that partially comes from the fact that a lot of the things that we did, um, you know, in the seventies and eighties to improve physical safety made huge differences, you know, bike helmets and yeah. bike helmets, save lives, seatbelts seat belts. save tons of lives, but just because it's successful, you know, on, on those kind of like low hanging fruit doesn't mean that there's no, there's never a downside to it. So that's one aspect, the success of physical safety, um, and also some other phenomena, but they're also, uh, and I wanted to call this pseudo safety, but this does make it into the book. Also the conflation of physical safety for life and limb being confused with, um, being comfortable like, because the way safety gets used a lot on campus and has for some time is when people are saying it, they're most often really talking about feeling, uh, sort of like psychologically unperturbed, you know, like basically like feeling safe means more, it, it's more like feeling comfortable. And so you've got that, you know, some confusing things in there. Now, one of the things that is particularly fascinating about why parents who are our age and, uh, are, so focused on safetyism it is a little bit harder to explain, partially because it is way safer to be a kid today um, right. than it was when we were kids, like by a lot from every possible, uh, you know, certainly, you know, homicides, even though it's gone up quite a bit um, in the past two years, it, it's still much lower than it was when we were kids. And the you data know, uh, is indisputable, right? The data, I mean, I remember reading Stephen Pinker on some of this stuff and yeah. he cites a lot of data. It's, it's that's not really disputed, right? In terms of people yeah. looking at just the data. Well, people people try to claim that that in ancient, ancient, ancient times, when we don't have the best records, that, that maybe that was a time that things were, you know, much less violent. And there's there's no evidence that that's true. There's yeah. lots of evidence that indicates it isn't true. It doesn't, you know. Okay. Yeah. Um, people like to go at Pinker for being reasonable. Um, he, he's on our board of advisors. You know, like he, he's a he's actually a, a genuinely sweet guy. Like yeah, I've been like amazed that, yeah. at. Both Height and Pinker, both complete stellar geniuses, um, right. but also very nice people, yeah, which is like 
which makes a difference. So I think one of the reasons why parents our age were even more paranoid. Oh, there's one clarification. It was very important to me that in the book, Height and I are clear that since we're trying to figure out what uh, particularly was hitting campuses, that the book would be more focused on the kind of kids who go to college and graduate college, particularly the kind of kids who go to elite schools. So uh. I say this, and, and I can't repeat it enough. It's not, it, it's, the book is mostly about maladies that are hitting uh, people from a higher social economic uh, strata than I'd say at least 50%, probably 75%. And when you get to elite campuses, probably 99 percent of the rest of the population the problems faced by working class and, and poor people today completely different and i always want to be very very clear on that but so like parents you know like parents who are relatively well to do who you, you know want their kids to go to the fancy schools and all this kind of stuff why would they be so much more paranoid about safety when every when by every measure everything was getting safer and i think at least in part um it was because the sort of traditional wisdom around, well, you know, you gotta uh, like like kids need challenges, kids need experiences that make them resilient and make them feel confident and all this kind of stuff. Particularly in in, in left leaning circles, which is where I live, and I'm left leaning myself, were kind of poo pooed. Like essentially, it was like, no, 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 like, like we don't say that kind of stuff. So I think that the natural kind of like you know the wisdom of our grandparents fell out of fashion. And this led to this real obsession, like no amount of of um, safety is enough, essentially. But of course, if you don't, if you think that everything's too risky, one, that's a, that's a cognitive distortion by itself. That's catastrophizing. Um, that's fortune telling. That's all of all these other, other things. But also you might end up in a situation where you're not letting kids develop self-efficacy, which is this idea that you need to be able to, you know, you need to, you, you, you need to know um, that if your parents left for a couple of days, for example, that you'd be fine. Um, and I, I, of course, knew that pretty early on, probably more than I should have, but still. If, but if they don't have these experiences that make them feel competent living on their own in the, in the real world, that is a formula for uh, what I really wanted to call the book, disempowered. Like It's disempowering young people. And of course, like if you don't think you're in control of your own world, you are anxious, you are depressed, uh, you are fearful, all of these things. So I, I think the thing that was the most surprising for me in height in the process of writing the book is how much it became a parenting book. Yeah. Well, especially towards the end, I mean, you really, I, I, I was reading it through that lens all along, just yeah. kind of applying stuff to parenting. But then towards the end, you gave a lot, you really did focus on that, which was incredible. But yeah, it's not like you look at it, you wouldn't think it's a parenting book, but I, I'll be the first, I have four teenage kids and I, it's probably one of, if not the most helpful book on parenting. And my wife and I were constantly, cause we, we being raised in the milk carton generation, like we, it's, it's just embedded in this. Yeah. that they're going to fall off their bike. And well, so that's a bad illustration because bike helmets do actually help, but like, Oh, they're uh, facing adversity at school. Oh, their teacher was unfair to them. I need to go and step in and do this. It's like, no, let's, that actually is good for character building. Like, Oh yeah, there's going to be authority figures that are not going to speak kindly. They're going to be unfair. Like how do you build not just resilience, but as Talib says, I mean, anti-fragility, like you're not just resisting opposition. It's when you like an immune system, when you face opposition, tension, stressors, you actually get stronger and better and more competent, but that's not, it's so intuitive for me to not, to want to protect, to want to, you know, put padded walls around my kid, wherever they go, oh, yeah. but it's so, it's, it's counterproductive, right? Um, oh yeah. No, I, I have a, I have a four and a six-year-old. Um, a boy named okay. Benjamin and a boy named Maxwell. I wanted to hit it a lot harder um, in the book that I am an anxious parent. Okay. Um, yeah. Because I wanted to be like very clear, like, listen, I'm not giving this advice because it just comes easy to me. It, it, it's kind of like, you know, like a like a supermodel, you know, pointing out like be prettier. You know, it, it's like, <laughs> you know, well, it's easy for you to say. But for me, like anxiety, you, you know, as, as someone who's, who's had a lot of issues with anxiety, like I am an anxious parent. And I and there are so many times my, it's my wife reminding me of my own values to be kind of like, listen, it's good to get them challenged. Like, um, <laughs> go read like, the okay, book. Okay. 
And uh, yeah, I wrote a little bit about about this in, in a series that I did called Catching Up with Coddling, talking about like the, you know, the big steps. Um, we, we, when we got out of town for, I live in DC, when we got out of town for COVID, we rented this place that had these like terrifyingly long steps down to the down to the water. And, you know, it, it was, and it really made me want to really be clear to, to the rest of the world. It's like, no, no, I experience all of this stuff. And I certainly went into parenting knew I, knowing, I'd be, knowing I'd be an anxious parent. But you have to remember, it's not just as, as simple as like toughen them up and like all this kind of stuff that sounds so passe right. in our heads. It's that if you don't give them the skills to deal with stressors in life, you are not doing them any favors. They will be they will be sadder. They will be, they will be more frightened. They will be disempowered. What well, you mentioned that that spike in between 2013 and 2014. What why why is that? Well, what happened in that? Like why the shift then? Yeah, no, and that was the that's kind of like the whole question animating the book is figuring out okay. what was so different by what with, with these students who were hitting campus in large numbers around 2014. We still, you know, you'll never know these kind of things with, with perfect accuracy, but we we do, and this almost sounds passe now since so much of um, there's been so much written about it since we first published the article in 2015, but we think that social media sped up a lot of existing trends. So we talk about six different causal threads because you know they were, that's uh, where, where those kind of people would come up with six different causal threads i actually think there's a seventh um that i've added since but the those are um social media polarization uh why parents paranoid parenting which you know i got a little bit too why i think that happened in most interesting one in my opinion that we didn't see coming going in lack of free play and lack of independent time because that self-efficacy that i was talking about yeah. you can't develop it while your while your parents are holding your hands like you you have to have the sense that you can you, you'll be okay by yourself um and that you know how to like function in the real world why campuses you know uh we talked about one hyper bureaucratization of universities has have made everything uh much more like a um like a permanent nanny kind of situation which is not healthy and then the last one is new ideas of social justice which were sort of disseminated from Campus to education schools to K through twelve repeat um, it, like in in that cycle. The seventh one it, it, that we we tried to point out a little bit in the paranoid parenting chapter is just the um, and this is where I, I sound like a Marxist, but I think it's also true is wealth stratification. I don't like saying income inequality because there's not like a society in human history that didn't have in, unequal incomes, um, except for when everybody was dirt poor. Um, that, that's, that's the only time you have. But I do. I, and particularly uh, I, I went to Stanford Law School, um, which was complete other universe from the way I grew up. And it was really um kind of it was really shocking in a way and since there is a, a real sense that you could fall out of the you know the upper classes for even though america doesn't like to call them that very easily and it's very hard to get up into them and i think that part of this is leading to the absolute um, obsession with getting your kids into elite colleges, which of course is very hard to do. It's getting harder every year, drives people nuts at the same time, because it, it, it's just like, I mean, ugh, I, 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 I remember talking to someone uh, um, when I was uh, a, a cousin of someone I was, uh, that I was dating in law school. And she was just like, Oh yeah, no, uh, talking about how stressed she was about getting into college. Uh, and, and, you know, like, Oh, you know how it is. And I was like, I really don't. I kind of, you know, I literally visited one school and went there. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give me an example? So, so you've done your primary work is on these kind of elite college campuses and you're seeing a shift from environments that build anti-fragility and resilience versus now you're, it's kind of the script is flipped to where we're yeah. almost creating an environment that kind of feeds this anxiety and depression. Can you give me like a concrete example? What is that? Describe maybe a real scenario of a college campus that you find for these various reasons is actually being very unhelpful for fostering anti-fragility among students. Is it, I mean, I've heard, I've even seen, I, I always hear like, you know, safe spaces when a controversial yeah. speaker comes on. Is that actually a real thing? And, and yeah. Uh, it absolutely is a real thing. So one, one point of clarification is one, we don't just do campuses anymore. Uh, okay. we, we do. And so, you know, if your listeners know talent, you know, we're hiring, we're expanding a great deal at FIRE. 
um, that we're looking for new plaintiffs for good First Amendment cases. Um, so I'm trying to spread the word as much as I, I can about that. And when it comes to elite campuses, uh, we deal with all, all campuses across the country. Just the problems that are hitting elite campuses um, are, are the hottest ideological ones. Uh, so you'll see abuses of power at regular state schools, um, you know, that are as old as time. Some administrator doesn't like, you know, this student or this faculty member and they figure out an excuse for getting rid of him or her. But the problems in elite campuses are are strange. Julie Lefat Hames wrote a book called How to Raise an Adult, and she was actually a dean at Stanford when I got there. And the way she explained it, so in a sense, it started with parents because students were showing up, and you and you know to get into Stanford, like like these are these are kids who've been working their whole lives, you know, and so they're in a lot of cases they're brilliant kids, but they're uh, that after two thousand. Drip by drip, you start having slightly more and then a lot more students who would immediately get on their phone, their parents to make basic decisions, even Mm -hmm. relatively small ones. And it's like, wow, that's that's not healthy. And at first she thought it was kind of like strange, but then it got more and more common. So there was this um, yet another way that, you know, cell phones kind of changed, changed the world. You actually, as a practical matter, could uh, find out what your uh, mother and dad think. Um, when it comes to how campuses make this stuff worse, it's hard to even know where to begin. Even some of the big state schools, um, you know, L- Louisiana State University rightfully took a lot of uh, flack because they spent tens of millions of dollars on a giant, gently floating pool that called the Lazy River um, that, that uh, you know, students could just relax in, uh, which, you know, sounds pleasant, um, but <laughs> it was usually framed as kind of like... It, They they so often frame things that are just nice or pleasant as being crucial to your mental health. So when it comes to the safe spaces, you know, that was something that seemed almost beyond parody when it really started hitting. So early on, one of the examples that really even shocked me, and I was I'd already been working in this field for 15 years. Uh, Brown, um, there was a there was a more conservative leaning feminist and a, a more left leaning feminist coming to Brown, and it was about the, the the topic was about sexual assault. And if the people had, if the critics of of this uh, more conservative leaning feminist had gone, they would have found that she was raped when she was younger, and that she still believes that people have a right to be presumed innocent and on all this stuff. But the, you know, and what what does and doesn't work. Is it Paglia? I was looking at my book. Is it Camille Paglia? Was she the? Uh, I know not, she's done no, stuff on abuse that stirred some people, but not Paglia. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll remember. Anyway, not sometime, yeah. Sometime at three o'clock in the morning, I'll remember. <laughs> and so they set up a a safe room, like a safe space, as a, like alternative programming where people there would be pictures of puppies and um, uh, cook uh, freshly baked cookies and um, you know butterflies and like all this kind of stuff that was like apparently was appealing to some students at least but it was like everybody my age or older or certainly you know um, and then a big chunk after me uh, would have found that incredibly demeaning incredibly insulting like aren't we supposed to be adults what like what, what are you saying here so they were really sort of contributing to this sort of like infantilizing of people that we up until fairly recently thought of as adults when they turned 18. yeah so there are many different ways in which campuses do this uh you know speech codes which we fought for, forever um bias-related incident programs that allow you to anonymously report faculty members or your fellow students for saying offensive things. There are many things that they do on campus that sort of play into this idea that uh, students are fragile, um, they need protection from words, um, and that it's the campus's job to, you know, sort of police the entire environment for offense. I've heard, so let me, I'm going to try to dig into this a little bit, because I think the whole speech is violence is, is, And platforming this speaker is harmful for, you know, whatever. And I'm just trying to understand because it's it's become such a polarizing conversation. So um, on the one hand, I've heard people typically on the right say, oh, so now we're just protecting people from ideas that they disagree with is kind of how it's framed sometimes. Like, well, obviously anybody who does that is that's just terrible. But what, what about are the legitimate cases where words can trigger a traumatic response. And I'm, I'm trying to play devil's advocate here because I, I sure, can, sure, I can yeah, take yeah. what I'm saying, but like take the abuse thing, like somebody that has gone through abuse, if they hear yeah. somebody speaking about that insensitively or even sa- saying something that could really trigger a 
genuine traumatic effect. Is is that a, a is that a real concern? And B is that, or would you say that like no, even in that case, they should if it's just a word. If somebody's not trying to physically abuse them, they should learn how to build resilience to somebody who might might even downplay the percentage of abuse on campus or whatever. It's a it's a fantastic uh, question, and it, and it is important to take um, you know people uh, their claims seriously on this kind of stuff. And believe me, like there are people who you know, um, there who have, uh, 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 survived rape, for example, or survived other really traumatic experiences who are permanently scarred for that. I think that a big part of the switch was when around 2014, 2015, this, uh, the responsibility for this was shifted more to professors saying that you need to provide trigger warnings because you don't know if, um, someone in your class, you know, has a history of PTSD, for example, and this puts professors in a really hard position because they can't know that. They have to kind of guess, you know, like what materials they have to put the trigger warning in front of. But also, you know, when it comes to trigger warnings, this is something that was badly misunderstood, uh, and even though we said it very clearly from in the original article and on. If there was good evidence that trigger warnings helped people with PTSD, okay. that would be a very different um, scenario. Um, okay. And I could I could be persuaded that they make a lot of sense. Uh, not only is there no evidence of that, um, and there's been at this point I mean, five or six studies on trigger warnings, no benefit has been found in any of them. Uh, and in a couple of them, there were negative side effects um, that that essentially it made students more frightened uh, because it was kind of like, you know, like the equivalent of playing scary music, you know, like, don't, 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 this thing is going to get you. So something that they barely would have reacted to otherwise becomes fraud. And there was at least one study in which they showed that it made students more uh, more students believe and that free speech you know is, is fundamentally harmful so i do get the concern and and i share the concern for people who are suffering from trauma but the older way that you would deal with some of this would be to have um that it has to to some degree fall upon someone who's suffering from it to talk to the professor and there are awful professors out there, but I do think that most of them would be like, okay, you know, if you want to, you know, read this instead, not show up for the class where we, you know, show a documentary about sexual assault. But the most important way in which the thinking is wrong in this is that avoidance is actually a symptom of PTSD. Uh, and so huh. the idea that you can sort of treat PTSD by facilitating people avoiding it, that plays into the idea that people are fragile. That plays into the idea that, that there is actually something to be scared of. Meanwhile, like as far as approaching ideas, there probably couldn't be a safer space than an American college classroom. It's important to, you know, be as compassionate as you can. But I do think that to a degree, you, you know, our framing everything as like sort of a constant assault upon people's fragile psyches is becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's, it's leading people to believe um, that they are more fragile than they are. And here's the part that I feel like, particularly on, on my side of the spectrum on the left, that we don't like to admit at all is that you have to remember that things are also going to be abused if if it involves people. And I've heard plenty of stories of people saying, you know, some wise-ass 18, 19-year-old figuring out a way to, 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 to make a professor's life miserable because they're, you know, they, they claim this and they want to be called this and, they, and they're, you know, that, uh, that people will game the system in a way that can sometimes be cynical. So you have to take, if you're dealing with people, you have to, do, you have to take in consideration all of these things. So I think that the, the by shifting the responsibility for, for dealing with students with trauma to, to professors have put, university uh, professors in a horrible situation. And I know that it's at least in part responsible for uh, professors saying that they feel like their own speech is chilled. Um, you know, it, it, it's definitely responsible for a big uptick in 2015 of students saying, of professors saying that they're kind of scared of their own students. Yeah. Um, and we've seen a huge uptick in professors getting for lack of a better word, canceled. Um, and some of those do relate to this new idea that essentially your professor is responsible for your for the, the their students' emotional reactions. Is there a problem that's super helpful? Um, is there a legitimate problem of for for lack of better terms, right of center or cons or conser politically conservative or politically or culturally conservative viewpoints being not represented on college campuses because, the majority would consider those viewpoints not just wrong, but evil. So ideas lead to actions. And if you believe this idea is evil, then that could lead to bad action. So, you know, we're not going to have, for instance, 
pick your favorite, Ben Shapiro on campus because yeah, he's not physically violent, but his ideas are toxic and that's going to motivate people to do bad things. Is I, th- I think, is that, is that the logic of why they would not platform typically not platform like conservative viewpoints? And how would you respond if that's an accurate way of representative, sure. how would you respond to that? Uh, you know, I went into First Amendment law partially because, um, you know, I talked about be, being first generation and, and you have a special appreciation for it. Also being from a different class than economic class than a lot of people I grew up with. But one really formative thing for that was being a student journalist. And you will find that a lot of people who are First Amendment, you know, champions are former journalists or, or at minimum former student, student journalists. And that's partially because you see people come into your office every day that 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 they they want you to get that one columnist fired or 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 retract that one article or apologize for something but they haven't figured out the rationale yet hmm. and so they work backwards on whatever they think will be the most compelling and and I'm not saying that they're doing this necessarily cynically they're just kind of doing it automatically that that was harassment or that was intimidation or that was this so my point here is um just like my co-author John Haidt pointed out in the righteous mind it's often the case that they don't want Ben Shapiro here and they will figure out what the argument is to get Ben Shapiro not be here. Now, I do think at the same time, since the rule of motives is most motives are mixed, is that there are people who genuinely believe that having Ben Shapiro there will lead to uh, downstream horrible effects. Um, I, you see this a lot when it comes to the current controversies around Dave Chappelle and and, and trans. Um, there is an idea that if, if, if he's allowed to poke fun at some aspects of that um, and poke fun about a lot of the gender ideology and pronouns and that kind of stuff that it's going to uh, directly result in violence against um, right, right, against right. LGBT students. I can understand that concern to an extent. Um, I do think that's been used and abused badly. Uh, and, uh, and I think that the idea that adult people can't talk about the pluses and minuses of, for example, like uh, when to t- take your kid, put your kid on puberty blockers without that resulting in some horrifying downstream immediate effect is uh, sometimes I sometimes I think people sincerely believe it, but it's also highly speculative. It's also rhetorical. It's also a formula for if any downstream effect from speech can be considered negative, um, then you can really ban all speech. Oh, and by the way, this isn't a historical uh, hypo. Before the First Amendment was strongly interpreted, the great Oliver Wendell Holmes coined what he called the bad tendency test, which was if you can point to some speculative downstream effect of speech, then you could ban it. And then within about 13 years um, after coining it, he had a change of mind because he realized, wow, that means you can print like under these standards, you can ban practically anything. You can always speculate that this speech will eventually lead to this bad outcome. And that was um, his changing his mind on that way of looking at free speech is how we ended up with the beginnings of a strong First Amendment in the United States. Yeah. And it it, to me, just I'm I'm trying to I always like to really get inside of an argument and yeah, understand absolutely. it before it's, I really assess it. Very, I just, it's very healthy and compassionate. I, I really appreciate it. Well, <laughs> Cause I, you know, like, so this podcast, I I've got, it, it's largely a religious podcast, but I have loads of different people on. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm like an email saying I'm a platform an atheist. You're leading people away from Jesus or something. <laughs> my, my audience would never, they, they, they listen to it because they like the diversity of guests, but it just fe- I don't know what, how to respond except to say, like, it just see, it does seem so subjective. Like, so all the, left-leaning people are going to say Ben Shapiro's ideas are harmful. Um, all the right-leaning people are going to say Kamala Harris's ideas are harmful. It's like, what, where does it end? And each person thinks they're not just correct, but like, just like, yeah, I am the righteous person. And the other person is unrighteous and immoral. And how do we get to that kind of binary space to where it's not just a disagreement, about ideas it's, it's this other side. If you don't agree with this, my position, you are immoral and it's, I have a righteous mandate to stop immorality, you know, evil from happening. That I, I would say that the, the bigger mystery is how we ever pulled ourselves out of that tendency to see speech as just the same thing as violence of mm-hmm. people who disagree with you are necessarily stupid or evil or, or possibly both. Um, <laughs> that's more normal in human history. Oh, really? <laughs> it, it, okay. Yeah. Freedom of speech is a relatively recent invention for mass societies. It, you know, there wasn't a lot of discussion of freedom of speech in the in, in the ancient world. At least not the way that we would understand it. Um, but of course, you had 
uh, when you look at the democracies, there was. When you look at uh, you know Athens, for example, and they had different ideas of their, of this idea of isagoria, which was um, uh, like calmly argued speech, and paragia, which is this idea of like battling it out with your tongue, kind of like the like. And paragia was all, was something that Roger Williams would talk about in in early United States about like about the defining characteristic of of what freedom of speech is about is actually the the, the ability to be offensive to somebody else and and to to really do battle uh, with words. But you shouldn't be surprised that there wasn't a lot of discussion of free speech before the printing press because it wasn't practical to talk to people on a mass scale before then. But almost as soon as there was a printing press, you started having people advocating for freedom of the press, literally, of, of the machine. Uh, it was a long time and a lot of a, a lot of hard fighting um, to get freedom of speech understood in an expansive way, the way it was when you were you and I were kids in the 80s. Um, that was a long process. Freedom of speech is usually on the losing side. In human history point out when i point this out i um i always say it's like the you know freedom of speech um i call freedom of speech the eternally radical idea because um in every generation someone rises up and said uh, to challenge freedom of speech and to demand censorship <laughs> um <laughs> and that's why you need people fight, fighting back so i think that the that tolerance Believing in things like everyone's entitled to their opinion, um, and that, that you don't always assume you're always right, and and that um, all these like it, everything from it's a free country to each their own, you know, like we had all of these little sayings that actually are really good habits for freedom of speech. When you get into a circumstance where the two sides are frankly back into the system, the, the more normal situation where they see their enemies as stupid, evil, or both, um, it shouldn't be surprising that free speech starts to suffer. So we're entering into a more normal time period than less normal. We had a window of- nor nor Normal in the bad way. <laughs> normal, yeah, yeah, typical, maybe typical. Uh, yeah, typical, yeah. What would you say, because I, 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 I've wrestled with this, again, probably the nature of my podcast, um, having wide- array of different people on that you who's, know who's the most the, controversial person you've had on probably no one you'd recognize i mean everybody would be kind i mean so I, I i have a lot of um i do a lot of work with like religious communities in the lgbtq conversation so i have loads mm -hmm. of trans people intersex gay lesbian liberal conservative you know like all across the board and i love my largely christian audience you know that's going to be a really sensitive area and, and they might like oh i like this aspect this person was great but then this person you shouldn't have on and the next email is the opposite oh i like this person but this other one's your plot you shouldn't platform that voice i'm like you two should talk because you, yeah. each one like different and i just have to say you know what um change the channel if, it, if you can't take it i'm just i like to have interesting conversations with you, want, you want to see where people are coming from because yeah, because totally. when, when you when you go into when you really try to see things from other people's perspective. Now, of course, the, the, the fact that there are genuinely malevolent people actually exist um, sure. can, can screw up, screw that up sometimes. Um, but I think that everything I've learned and read, I mean, the genuinely malevolent, uh, malevolent people are tiny in number compared yeah. to everybody else. And that right. most people think that they're doing something uh, they think they're being kind. They think they're doing the right thing. They think they're responding to some kind of higher good out right, there. Right. Um, and it's important to begin with that assumption. You don't have to keep it if someone proves to be like highly dishonest, but it's it, it's a good um, starting point. And I think that when you have um, a situation like the United States where, you know, low population density places tend to be very Republican. High density population places tend to be very Democratic. High income places are increasingly more Democratic, which is uh, an, uh, which goes against Democrats own stereotypes. Right. You know, like, like all, all, all of all, all of these stuff that, that are kind of pulling us apart, but making it easy for us to think of people who disagree with us as you know morally bankrupt or grifters mm -hmm. or whatever. Is is there any legitimacy to the critique of you shouldn't platform that idea? Um, and, and here's here's the logic. Um, yeah. In, in, in my, so in my space, you know, I've got a wide range of liberal, moderate, conservative listeners, and they say, "Okay, here's a here's a good example." Actually, I, I've I've got a lot of people that enter into the race conversation, and I like to get different perspectives that are, you know, more pro CRT, more anti CRT, more like yeah. systemic racism largely doesn't exist to it's the greatest problem. And I'll get different opinions. And so when I have a voice that might be more conservative on the race conversation, the critique mm -hmm. I get, and I I think it's 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 one that I'm really wrestling with. I, there, there might be something here. The critique I get is people are like, well, there are conservatives who are just waiting to hear that one kind of conservative black voice and say, see, see, and like, it just yeah. confirms 
their kind of lazy, really suspicion. I don't need to think through it. There's this one, you know, conservative black voice and see, you know, um, they validated everything I said. Like, well, I don't, what, so what's the alternative? We just don't talk to people who might, the byproduct might be they confirm somebody's maybe wrong suspicion. Like, do we just, I don't like that option, but I, I think it is a, there is something there I, I want to consider. Do you have any thoughts on, on that? Yeah. Or? yeah I, I think that the easiest version of the no platforming argument to uh, contend with is when people apply that to campus. Okay. Um, because I think that uh, they're thinking about the one of the most important values of freedom of speech wrong. And this is partially because um, the way freedom of speech gets explained a lot of times is that it's about the search for truth. But when you say that in academic circles, um, one of the things that they uh, think of is like the platonic form of truth, like objective truth, um, which is, as we know, it, um, uh, you know, there are people who claim it doesn't even exist. And even um, even those who, who think it does exist, we all have to admit that it's it can be incredibly hard to know and you might not even know when you're right. Um, so. I think, but th 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 that muddies the water, but I think it's an incorrect understanding of what the search for truth um, that, that freedom of speech allow allows for is, is really about. It's about knowing the, the mundane details, um, the everyday reasons why, what people think and why. So if you're doing a class on conspiracy theories, you know, having, showing a video, um, you know, discussion with, I don't know, Alex Jones or something like that, <laughs> is actually like, really that's a good idea like that actually makes a lot of sense it can help you really understand and conspiracy theories to be, to be clear matter historically um the uh the protocols of the elder of zion um you know a, a made up book that that claimed to be an exposé on sort of jewish control of the world before world war 1 that was very influential for for the detriment of, of of the whole human race. Doing exactly what you're doing is being curious and wanting to know where people come from and why they think even the crazy things, or maybe even especially the crazy things, um, is valuable. Does every podcast have a you know have an obligation to be as as open to the exploration of everybody's uh, of where everyone's coming from? They obviously don't um, ha have the obligation to. But I do wish sometimes listeners, um, you know, the ones who said you shouldn't have had that person on, it's like, well. Did you learn anything from it? Like, did, did, even if what you what you learned about was about a new opinion that you didn't know really made you angry, like like right, that's right. actual knowledge. And if they say, "Well, you're exposing a lot lot of people to this really bad idea," I'm like, yeah. "Okay, let's just say that's true. If it's such a bad idea that it shouldn't even be listened to." then the most people with a brain are going to immediately recognize that. <laughs> like if it's that off, like if I had David Duke on and he's talking about the superiority of white people or whatever, it's like, it's so bad that people aren't going to buy it. They're going to, you know, you're going to expose evil to light, you know? Um, yeah. But, or maybe, maybe you just don't like the idea, but it's actually more nuanced and, and, and thoughtful than you want to give credit. And then maybe if you're exposed to it, you might actually have to think through why you disagree with it rather than just that, you know, don't, don't have the person on that idea is bad, you know? Yeah. And, know. and, and the very problem that you're talking about is one of the reasons why um, you have to be careful about starting down that road at all, because once you're deplatforming someone because you think their views are odious, like, well, there are plenty of views that we think are odious. Actually, in a lot of cases, the view that's just about to become the dominant view is often uh, mm -hmm. seen as odious first. You know, uh, it, it's hard to really make principled distinctions then. And I think that in some cases, reminding people, you know, like you said, you don't have to listen to the podcast. You don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to read that book you hate, you know, like you don't, you, you don't have to go to a, uh, you don't have to go to a talk on campus. Like the, but um, yeah, I, I think that uh, some of the lessons that we're teaching people for living in a free society, they do almost presume also that you're the ones who's going to be making those decisions in the first place, you know, like, like, like essentially like the, the who decides question of freedom of speech is of course really central. Should I really feature this book? Because that might, and I think this is a really wrong headed book and I don't want other people reading it, you know, um, but who would you let make that decision for you? You know, right, uh, right, like that, right, that was right. Chris, Christopher Hitchens used to talk about kind of like think hard, who would you want deciding what <laughs> you could read? And the answer is like, well, nobody, of course. That's up to me. It's like, see? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. I was watching, um, are you a, I don't know if you're a baseball fan, uh, Field of Dreams, a famous movie. 
Um, you know, I never, I've never actually seen it, which is embarrassing for someone my oh, okay. age because it yeah. was like huge when I was oh. a kid. Well, there, I was a, a scene. Football, there's a. I was a football player. Um, not, okay. not, a, not a baseball player. It's funny. There's a scene there where this, you know, Kevin Costner's wife. They're kind of post. They're raising the hippie generation, so you know, very liberal. And they're on. They're on this PTA meeting at school where they're talking about banning a book, and she yeah. get she gets up as this kind of hippie liberal like and just lambast you know the leaders for wanting to ban a book like worse for free speech and we need to not ban you know anti-censorship but that was filmed in 1989 and accurately represented the culture it's interesting to me and i don't know why but what used to be a very left-wing idea and passion of anti-censorship seems like it's kind of flipped around now that it's typically people on the more the far left that want to censor thing well maybe it's the both is it both the far right and far left that just want to censor different things i just i don't know um i I talked about this on charlie sykes's podcast and i think this might be the first time possibly in human history that freedom of speech is truly a centrist value um because since free speech is such a, you know, like, um, like I, I call it the eternally radical idea, as I mentioned before, it's one of those ideas that um, you think would normally be drawn to the extremes. Um, but currently right now, it seems like the, 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 the two extremes are much more comfortable with censorship as long as they're the ones doing the censoring. Right, right, right. And that's true. I do see it on the right, too. Well, yeah, I don't want to keep you past your hour. Can I point people to where they can find you? And are you working on any book projects right now or anything? Or uh... Uh, Sure. I'm at thefire.org, and I'm working on a follow-up to Coddling the American Mind called, extremely creatively, The Canceling of the American Mind. Oh, really? When's that going to come out? Uh, hopefully September of next year, you know, we're trying to crank it out pretty fast, partially because like the idea that there is no such thing as cancel culture is something that the data is pretty overwhelming um that we're living in not just uh you know uh that it's one it's not, not only is it a large number it's historic and that we're going to be looking back at this in 50 years and say what what happened do, do you see things getting better i guess that was a question i want to ask like as you look at college campuses 2013-14 really starts to turn the corner in a negative way is it getting yeah. worse and worse or do you think it's starting to get better I think it's improved a bit since 2020, but given um, how, yeah, I fear that the belief that it might be getting a little bit better would let us off the hook from trying to get, uh, you know, giving people, in some cases, people who are fired for having the quote unquote wrong opinion. I think, okay, well, if that's what we think, well, let's give them their jobs back. So I I think that nothing could keep up as quite as intense as it was in 2020. Um, But I think that if you don't actually make meaningful reforms, it's just going to be even worse the next time. Greg, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for your book. Really looking forward to your next book too. That's exciting to hear that you're working on that. Thanks. Well, real pleasure chatting with you. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.